Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. Lori and I don't often know from one episode to the next what we'll be covering. It might be a risky maneuver, but we like to find topics that are of the moment, or in many instances, topics that find us. This is one of those topics. Sometimes, the perfect story exists and is just waiting for you to notice it. A little over a week ago, I was perusing my Facebook feed when I saw a post that read, it's Black History Month. Are you familiar with Pascal Beverly Randolph and his monumental contributions to the occult? There was a short article attached, and by the end of it, I knew it would be a perfect next episode for us. I mean, how can we not tell a story that blends Ohio, the occult, and Abraham Lincoln into an episode? Let's not forget the sex magic, the possible ties to Marvel's Doctor Strange, and the assertion that Dr. Pascal Beverly Randolph was likely the largest importer of cannabis during his time. This story has many layers and seems perfect for Valentine's Day. But before we dive in, let's take a moment to acknowledge Black History Month. Black History Month is a month-long observance in the U.S. and Canada, and some other nations observe in October, and a chance to celebrate Black achievement and provide a fresh reminder to take stock of where systemic racism persists and give visibility to the people and organizations creating change. It can trace its founding back to 1926, when historian Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History determined that the second week of February would be Negro History Week. This particular week was chosen because it coincided with the birthday of Abraham Lincoln on February 12th and Frederick Douglass's birthday on February 14th, both of which dates Black communities had celebrated since the late 19th century. The change to Black History Month was first proposed by Black educators and the Black United Students at Kent State University here in Ohio in February 1969, the first celebration of which would occur a year later at Kent State from January 2nd to February 28, 1970. By 1976, during the United States Bicentennial, Black History Month was being celebrated across the country and formally recognized by President Ford. At the time of Negro History Week's launch, Woodson contended that the teaching of black history was essential to ensure the physical and intellectual survival of the race within broader society, stating, If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. With that thought, Let us remind you of the largely and perhaps deliberately forgotten Dr. Pascal Beverly Randolph, Grand Master Occultist. Born October 8, 1825, Randolph was a multiracial medical doctor, occultist, spiritualist, medium, and prolific writer. He is notable as the first person to introduce the principles of erotic alchemy to North America and, according to A.E. Waite, the tarot card guy, establishing the earliest known Rosicrucian order in the United States, saying, I am not in a position to affirm that Pascal Beverly Randolph produced the first putative order of the Rosy Cross in America, but I have failed to trace anything anterior to his date. 
and he will answer as the first witness in a line of occult adventurers who are typically characteristic of their place and circumstance. Growing up in the notorious Five Points district of New York City, Randolph described it as, nearly every house and cellar is a groggery below and a brothel above. His family was deserted by his father, and after his sister contracted smallpox, he lived in the almshouse of Bellevue Hospital. Then after his mother's death, with his sister, and then after that with an English actress at Simpsons Park Theater, Harriet Jennings Whitehead. His adoptive father, George Jennings, was a gambler, and Randolph went door to door begging for food in a basket, saying, Thus, at less than 10 years old, I had become proficient in knowledge of the shady side of human nature, which had better have been postponed to a riper and steadier period of my life. To support himself, Randolph held odd jobs and lived as a bootblack or a shoeshiner, then as a cabin boy on a ship where he was routinely bullied by the sailors leading to severe depression, describing himself as a lonely man, one with a massive and active brain, but thin, weak, and puny body, therefore an unbalanced character. After an accident, he left his seafaring life and settled in Maine, where he picked up barbering and also some school. He taught himself to read from posters riding with chalk on fences. Despite this beginning, or perhaps because of it, he became a formidable writer and well acquainted with literature. Randolph would struggle for most of his life with profound discrimination, which forced him at various times to claim a variety of ethnic ancestry. He is sometimes described as mulatto, which may technically be correct for the time, but Randolph was born in America, not only before the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution, but before the abolitionist movement even came into being. It's important for parts of this story to be placed into context of the time, as Randolph was a black man born into a society that had yet to confront its own soul as a nation on the issue of slavery. Randolph described himself with these words, You will no doubt long since have observed that my cuticular hue is not in purity and clearness quite up to the popular standard. And I know public opinion has a thousand times tried me for that crime, found me guilty, and sentenced me to living death time and again. The adversity faced by Randolph cannot be understated. Even when a black person found a foothold in society, they were in constant danger of its reversal, faced with endless hassles and aggressions. While Randolph traveled an impressive amount, crossing the Atlantic at least three times, traveling through the Near East and across America, we can only imagine the endless series of insults and constant tension at his presence. In the diaries of Frederick Douglass, a contemporary of Randolph, there are numerous references to the constant battles of simply stepping onto a train or boat and it being demanded that he remove himself to the baggage car. I imagine Randolph would have had substantially similar abuses in his everyday life and travels. Despite this, he left a profound legacy and accomplished a phenomenal amount, particularly in the magical arts. From its outset, the spiritualist movement was progressive, and the mainstream of the esoteric movement has generally been socially progressive. Perhaps this is why Randolph found an early community there. 
Um, Many, if not most, of the early spiritualists were reformers and abolitionists. Their views on the spirit world were intermingled with the political world, supporting radical theories like the abolition of slavery, marriage reform, feminism, socialism, the abolition of taxes, and universal health care. They were the hippies of another era, and that included, of course, an element of free love. Randolph's attitudes on sexuality and free love were complex, and while they seemingly left an indelible mark on many occult practices, like Thelema, for example, they were also the reason that by 1858 he had left the spiritualism movement. In a series of public denunciations, he made it clear that what was bothering him was the abuses being perpetuated. In his condemnation of the modern times movement, he said the leader, Stephen Pearl Andrews, had brains enough to gather not a few cracked-head, passion-driven fools about him, all of whom considered rape and seduction a fine art and justifiable and hailed concubinage as lofty gospel. It seems as if he wasn't rejecting free love so much as the sexual abuses of male-dominated groups. Understanding that sexual freedom must be based on consent and individual will was an advanced concept for many in the 19th century. In leaving spiritualism, Randolph turned his focus to occultism and trance-channeling with magic mirrors, practices that would give him control over spirits rather than simply being their mouthpiece. He was experienced in the occult after his several European tours, which brought him into contact with the great occult notables of that period, including Kenneth R. H. McKenzie, Edward Bulwer Lytton, Elphias Levi, and two men who proved to be lifelong friends of influence, the English Rosicrucian writer Hargrave Jennings and the American general, mystic, and alchemist Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who he met in Paris. It was also on these trips that he acquired a working knowledge of magic mirrors and the use of psychotropic substances to facilitate esoteric exploration. Hitchcock facilitated contact with Napoleon III, the mystically inclined French emperor, and Randolph performed his spiritualism act before him. General Hitchcock would later introduce Randolph to Abraham Lincoln, which, as an aside, their relationship was seemingly close enough that when Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, Randolph accompanied Lincoln's funeral procession on a train to Springfield, Illinois. He was, however, asked to leave the train when passengers objected to the presence of a black man. It's also alleged that there are papers in existence inside the Rosicrucian order that Dr. Randolph founded, which showed he helped write the famous Gettysburg Address, though, as one may suspect, that's unverifiable. The early 1860s were a tumultuous time for Randolph. He was struggling spiritually and financially, though, based on his accomplishments, you'd never guess it. After selling their home in Stockbridge, New York, and moving to Utica, New York, Randolph and his wife, Mary Jane, began new ventures. Mary Jane was a healer and dispenser of Native American remedies. Together, they patented a variety of cannabis-based aphrodisiacs and medicines, touting some as especially suited for nervous exhaustion, and others as a panacea for passional excess, onanism, etc., and 
the best aphrodisian in the world. Randolph saw cannabis as the grand secret of medicine. It was also during this time that Randolph began to travel again and produced the first of a long string of important written works. He made a trip to the Near East where he encountered the culture of Anseire or Nusire, generally known today as Alois or Alawites, a religious minority in what is now Syria. This contact would form the basis for his most important teachings in sex magic. Upon his return, and while he had been active as a Rosicrucian for some years, he founded a Rosicrucian lodge in San Francisco on his own authority in 1861. By 1862, he had produced Dealings with the Dead, the Human Soul, its Migrations, and its Transmigrations. This book was the first attempt to transform American spiritualism into occultism. Its influence on occultism was broad, and it is reflected in later books by other authors such as Madame Blavatsky's Isis Revealed and in Thelema's concept of the Holy Guardian Angel. By 1870, Randolph had formed a publishing company in Boston. In 1872, he became enmeshed with several ne'er-do-well backers who he later considered to be frauds. By the end of their fallings out, he was arrested for obscenity. It is assumed that one of the backers may have been trying to get the copyrights to Randolph's books. Randolph was freed after a judge determined that his work was not obscene under the meaning of the statute, and he served only a couple of days in jail. He capitalized on this scandal by quickly printing The Great Free Love Trial, an almost entirely fictional work, as he was never tried for obscenity. Randolph would lose everything in the Great Boston Fire of 1872, saying he escaped with only his copyrights and some of the plates for his books and with what was left of his reputation. He was book rich, but money poor. It was at this point that Randolph moved to Toledo, Ohio, then a center for radical thought, as a spiritualist and doctor. I say Randolph moved because he had divorced his wife in 1864. It's admittedly difficult to squeeze his entire story into a concise episode when really, it could be a riveting three-hour feature film. But anyway, Mary Jane and her boatloads of marijuana are out of the picture now. At some point during all of this, he marries Kate Corson, who we'll talk about in a bit. By 1873, Randolph is worried about dying and what will become of his legacy. This is seemingly because he had fallen and was injured while walking on a railway trestle, leaving his left arm partially paralyzed. He takes this as an opportunity to travel to Europe again and to begin publishing his sexual doctrines. He would publish a core system of sex magic called The Secret of the Anseere Priesthood of Syria, which combines some of his previous work on the subject. For anyone interested, those other pamphlets can be found under titles such as The Golden Secret, The Golden Letter, and The Grand Secret, and a few other significantly harder to pronounce titles. In these, Randolph openly admits that his ancient secrets are his own doctrines. He minimized the Levantine origins for his system, and considering the unlikelihood that he encountered anyone willing to divulge Nuasiri's secrets in the Levant, he is probably telling the truth. 
His ultimate and finest exposition of the sexual mysteries of the universe would come in his private manuscript, The Mysteries of Euless, in 1874. Concepts from these texts are mirrored by Aleister Crowley in the Thelemic concept of will. That is to say, while perhaps Randolph didn't borrow his ideas from a secret Syrian sex cult, it's possible that Crowley did borrow a bit from Randolph. In late 1874, Randolph heads down to Nashville to form the Brotherhood of Euless, before heading back to San Francisco in early 1875 to refound his Rosicrucian order that he had previously established in 1861. While there, he was met with what he described as prejudice and bigotry of the Orthodox believers, which is hard for me to comprehend because Randolph claimed Rosicrucian as his own work, unlike those Golden Dawn guys in Atlantis. So my best guess is that the refounded group hadn't realized Randolph was a black man and weren't happy. In fact, they threatened to kill him. Obviously feeling unwelcome, he returns to his wife, Kate Corson, in Toledo. Randolph came home with new ideas and plans. He seemed hopeful for a future and was excited to have a new son. He worked with Kate to publish several books and with her on her career as a seer and medium. But it appears their relationship was complicated and conflict was growing. Kate was much younger than Randolph and he began to suspect that she was having an affair. Always mercurial, he fell into a deep depression and a cycle of drinking. On July 20th, 1875, he wrote his friend S.S. Jones and said, Now that I am on the thither side of the to-be-fated 29th of March, 1875, the refounding of the Rosicrucian Order in San Francisco, I feel that I can work and win new victories, no longer afraid of a lack of greenbacks, friends, or faith in God. On July 29, 1875, rising and finding his wife away, he went to the house of a neighbor where she was supposed to be. Finding her absent, he told the neighbor that he would be dead within two hours. Randolph died in Toledo, Ohio, at the age of 49, under disputed circumstances. According to the biographer Carl Edwin Lindgren, many questioned the newspaper article, by his own hand, that appeared in the Toledo Daily Blade. According to this article, Randolph had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. However, many of his writings express his aversion to suicide. R. Swinburne Clymer, a later Supreme Master of the Fraternitas, stated that years after Randolph's demise, in a deathbed confession, a former friend of Randolph had conceded that in a state of jealousy and temporary insanity, he had killed Rudolph. Lucas County Probate Court records list the death as accidental. After his death, Randolph remained a popular figure Coming full circle, the spiritualist seemingly had no trouble immediately talking to the legendary occult authority and getting him to reveal post-mortem revelations, much like the YouTube ghost box folks of today. Randolph's influence, though often unacknowledged, has been widespread. The Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor acknowledged his work, even if toning down the sexual magical element somewhat. The Beverly Hall Corporation and its ancestor, Rosicrucian Bodies, established contact with Kate Corson Randolph, his widow, and eventually she claimed airship to the Brotherhood. 
though she was not named so in any of Pascal Randolph's papers. Kate continued in New York to distribute Randolph's literature, elixirs, and the like into the 20th century. Pascal Beverly Randolph laid much of the foundation for what would become Western occultism. Everything from Thelema to the Church of Light to OTO owes some credit to Randolph's thoughts and work. Admitting this expands our knowledge of the roots of contemporary magical tradition and redresses the long and willful neglect of a genius visionary. For some powerful episodes, consider listening to a few of these. Witness, Minorities in the UFO Phenomenon, When Lincoln Could Fly, Ghost Train, Digging Up the Dead, and our two-part series on Hester Foster. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend or tag us on social media, and be sure to leave a review. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q Files. Oh, and before I forget, there's some speculation that Marvel's Doctor Strange could be based on Randolph. Both are from New York. Both are doctors turned powerful sorcerers. They even share the same hairstyle and goatee.